Now, I'm teaching a series entitled, It is Finished, Hence the Cross. We started this on Easter, It is Finished. And last week, I preached on the first place that Jesus shed his blood, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I talked about how he broke the curse of a sin nature. If you've grown, if you've grown up in a religious environment, and you've been taught that we are bound by a sinful nature, we're just sinners saved by grace, I really encourage you to watch last week's message because it's revolutionary. You know, we don't believe in new revelation. We believe in all the revelation that is in the Word of God. And what has happened, just like with the Reformation, truths that were lost to the church were rediscovered. We don't look for new doctrines or new ideas. There is plenty of stuff in what is written, and it needs to be revived, restored, renewed in our understanding so that we live in the fullness of all of the Word of God. Can I get an agreement? Amen. Absolutely. And so last week I talked about the fact how we were crucified with Christ and Jesus put to death the curse of the sin nature and gave us our righteous nature. Amen. I don't have to try to be righteous. He put righteousness, the nature of righteousness in me. He surrounds me and views me and beholds me as the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And so we start from the place it's already done. It is finished. So many people are still trying to earn God's forgiveness or earn God's favor. My sins are so big, I, I, I've got to really try hard. No, the moment I accepted Christ as my Savior, the moment I let Jesus be in my heart, the miracle of a new creation took place instantaneously. And what is that new creation? He took out the law of sin and death out of our nature. And he gave us the nature of righteousness. Can I get an agreement? Amen. I don't struggle to have God's approval. I rejoice. I laugh. I relish in the fact that I am already accepted and I am viewed by him as if I've never sinned. Too many people live their Christianity from a mindset of, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, I was a sinner. I was saved by grace. But now, I am a son. I am an heir. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I am seated in heavenly places. And if you read that passage in Ephesians chapter 1, he's the head, we're the body. That means we're both sitting in the same throne seat. Amen. Amen. But he's the head, but we're the body. If we're the body, we must be an acceptable body. Isn't that the truth? Come on, think about it. If he says you are the body, then we are an acceptable body. He has given us his righteousness. 
And so many people strive and they labor under guilt and condemnation and don't understand we stand on the fact that at the cross when Jesus said, it is finished, it is finished. We start from the finish line. Come on now. Isn't that good? We start from the finish line. I want you to see this image in your mind. I am deliberately standing on the cross. I am deliberately standing on the words that Jesus said, it is finished. That's where you and I need to stand mentally, emotionally. We need to position ourselves. We're not out there striving. We are there living in the victory of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Come on. If you believe that, get excited. Give the Lord some thanks. Amen. Give him a high five. <laughs> All right. Today I'm going to be sharing with you the second place that Jesus sh shed his blood, the second time that blood came out of his body, and the curse that was broken from uh, that shedding of his blood. And we see here in scriptures, uh, and if you would just throw the three scriptures up, uh, these three references, Matthew 27, 26 to 29, Mark 15, verse 15 to 17, and John chapter 19, verse 1 to 2, talk about the fact that Pilate, after he washed his hands, didn't want to have anything to do with the uh, death of Jesus. He handed him over to the Pharisees and handed him over to his soldiers to be whipped to be flogged, and then brought to the crucifixion. And so the second place that Jesus shed blood was when they whipped him. Now, there's, we've often said, and when I say we in Christendom, that Jesus received 39 lashes because 39, uh, 40 was considered it would kill you, so he got 40 minus 1. Now, just a tidbit, this is not super relevant, but let's just put a little bit of a, a correction. None of the Gospels say that Jesus received 39 lashes. We see in Paul's letter, he talks about that he received 39 lashes from the Jews five separate occasions. He received 39 lashes. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that if you whip someone, that you could not exceed 40. We assume Jesus was whipped 39 times, but just to be technically correct, we really don't know. We can assume it, but remember, that's an assumption, okay? How many times the Roman uh, uh, rule, the Roman authority would... Uh, hand out uh, lashings. We don't know if it was 20 or 50. We don't know what number it was. But we know this, that Jesus was whipped. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, this is what Peter says. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. How many of you believe that on that cross, this is cedar, once was a tree. I can, in a sense, call it a tree. I can call it a cross. But Jesus Christ, when he was crucified on that cross, when he was crucified on the members of a tree, 
He bore all of my sin and he bore all of your sin in his physical body. How many of you believe that? Absolutely. He goes on to say that we, having died to sin, that connects with last week, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. And then he goes on and he says, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, I'm going to talk about this second place that Jesus shed blood. When they whipped his back, it was a bloody mess of flesh. But he broke the curse, just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was toiling with his will as opposed to the will of the Father, where the first Adam lost the game. He lost the plot. He dropped the ball. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, held on to the ball, and made a touchdown. He said, Father, as much as I don't want to do this, as much as my flesh is raging against me, at the end of the day, it's not what I want, it's what you want. And he became obedient unto death. Man, that's a powerful phrase. I want to be obedient even unto death if need be. To the name of Jesus Christ. Can I get an agreement? Amen. Amen. Here it says by his stripes we were healed. Now before I lay this out for you this morning. I want to bring a little bit of clarification. Because as usual sometimes there are differing opinions. And I find that there's only one opinion that really really matters. And that's God's opinion. And so. When Jesus died on the cross, this is referred to as the atonement. He died to atone for our sins. According to Webster's New World College Dictionary, the word atonement is satisfaction given for wrongdoing or an injury, making amends, expiation, okay? He paid the price, some of the synonyms for atonement are reparations. We hear reparations, paying for the mistakes of the past. Restitution, doing what needs to be done so that that person can be restored and all their rights restored back. Making amends, making payment. So for clarity's sake, from a biblical perspective, when we talk about the atonement, it is the act of paying the price for our salvation. How many of you here this morning agree that when Jesus was on the cross, he paid the price for our salvation? Now, I, I really want to see your hands, so if you understand that and believe that, put your hand up nice and high. Jesus atoned for us. He paid the price for all of our mistakes. All right. So then what is salvation? You know, if from when a child is born, now no one in their right mind would do this, but if from when a child is born, you put contact lenses in their eyes that were shaded blue, he would see all of life and he would grow up always thinking everything had a blue to it. And from his paradigm, 
from his knowledge from the beginning of his life, everything in life has a blue hue. And so he would imagine things through that blue lens. And if one day you ever surprised him and took out these lenses and he could see clearly, he would see that though he saw many things accurately, he saw them in a tainted way. They were tainted with the color blue. Would you agree? You see, part of the problem is that the enemy tries to get us narrow-focused and narrowed-minded. How many of you know that God is a lot bigger than our imagination? Okay? And when we give a, a definition to a word in Scripture, God's definition is usually a lot bigger than ours. And so if Jesus atoned, he paid the price for our salvation, what does salvation mean? And I ask that question, which might seem like, that, that's a ridiculous question to ask. It, we all know what salvation means, the forgiveness of our sins. That's exactly my point. You see, we see salvation from a modern evangelical position. We don't see salvation from God's position. I want to show you what salvation means in the word of God. Because we have preached the gospel of salvation and it entails turn from your sin, realize you're doing wrong, be remorseful, but more than that, change the direction of your life, repent, and ask Jesus Christ into your life and now go and sin no more, like Jesus said to the woman caught in the act of adultery. But the Bible refers to salvation as a much broader thing. I'll prove it to you in just a moment. When the Bible talks about salvation, God comes to save in many different ways, and he comes to save us from many different things. Have you ever heard of a superhero who only comes to rescue a little old grandma when somebody's about to steal her handbag? I don't think you'd go to the movies to watch that movie, would you? You'd think to yourself, man, that's a little bit lame. I mean, thank God he's helping all these little old ladies that are going to get mugged. That is awesome. That's incredible. But uh, hello, if you're a superhero, surely you can do a lot more than that. How many of you understand what I'm saying here? Okay. I think man's problems stem from the fact that he's a sinner. Man's problems, all of our problems, stem from the fact that the first Adam fell and he sinned. But our problem isn't only that we have sin. How many of you can agree you face a lot more other types of various problems other than just sin? Wouldn't it be great to be saved from our problems? We're going to look at what the Word of God says. And uh, you know here in this church, I often go back to the original Hebrew and the original Greek. And most times when I'm quoting a scripture, I will share with you, I'll take words from that scripture, and if it's an Old Testament scripture, bring you back to the Hebrew, and if it's a New Testament scripture, bring you back to the Greek. And I, for, for the sake of uh, a little bit of saving of time, 
I'm going to put this up on the screen. The word salvation appears in four different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. Four different words. So the translators always translated as salvation, but in the Hebrew original text, it's actually written in different verses four different ways, and we're going to look at what they mean. And so the first word for salvation is the reference number. If you have a Strong's, you could go home and look this up, and that's why I give you this information. Check me out. Check it out. And uh, in the Strong's reference number, 3444. Now, by the way, the Strong's exhaustive concordance is not a Catholic tool book. It's not a Protestant tool book. It's not a Baptist tool book. It's not a Pentecostal tool book. It is non-denominational, been around for years, trusted across the board by every theological student or teacher, okay? Now, how many of you have ever had or seen or used a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance? Okay. There are four different words, and the first one, the reference number is 3444. 3444, it is used 64 times in the Old Testament. This is the most common word for salvation in the Old Testament, and it's Yeshua. Jesus' name is Yeshua. He's the Savior. He's the Anointed One. And according to the Hebrew, Yeshua means abstractively deliverance, hence aid, victory, prosperity, deliverance, health, helping, salvation, save, saving, health, welfare. David says in 1 Chronicles, after he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, he said, sing of the Lord, 1 Corinthians Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23. He said, sing of the Lord of our salvation. This is the word that's used. Sing of Yeshua, the deliverer, who brings us aid, who brings us victory, who brings us prosperity, who brings us deliverance, who brings us health, who is our helper, our salvation. He saves us and he brings us welfare, well-being. Now, is that in contradiction to what we see God doing in the Old Testament? Did God ever visit them and deliver them? Yes, he did. He delivered them in many ways, in many circumstances. He delivered them from the Egyptians. He opened the Red Sea, did a miracle, brought them through and closed the Red Sea again. He delivered them. He delivered them again and again. Daniel was in the lion's den. What did God do? He delivered him from the ferocious appetite of the lion's. He gave them victory. When victory was impossible, the odds were against them. Some of the greatest movie stories, Cecil, Cecil, C., uh, uh, Cecil B. DeMille recognized that if he wanted a movie success, 
that the best thing to do was to build a message on an Old Testament story. And we have story after story of God bringing amazing victories to his people, even when the odds were against them. He brings them victory. And during times of national famine, he would break the famine and bring them prosperity and bring them food and bring them breakthrough. And when they served God and turned from idols and turned from sinful, detestable ways, God would bless them, lift them up, and he would cause them to prosper. Job was a righteous man. That man made sacrifices every time his kids had their friends over and they had a party. He would make sacrifices the next day just in case one of them sinned. And the Bible says that God prospered Job. He brought health. He brought uh, welfare. He helped the economy of the nation when the nation repented and turned to God under King Jehoshaphat. There was massive repentance. The king led the people back to the word of God. And the Bible says that Judah, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, consisting of two basic tribes, the tribe of Judah and the Levites, became far more powerful than the nation, the split away nation of Israel, which consisted of ten tribes. It says that Jehoshaphat became so powerful after he led a revival of repentance and taught the people the word of God that all the surrounding nations brought him tribute and recognized we don't want to mess with this guy. How many of you think God affected their welfare? Absolutely. You won't get a better welfare system than God's welfare system. Can I get an agreement? <laughs> Turn to somebody and say, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. No one's got a welfare system like God. So Yeshua, that's the first word that is translated as salvation. The second word is used 28 times. And it's the word Yesha. And it means liberty, deliverance, prosperity, safety, salvation, saving. So when the word salvation is used, it talks about liberty. How many of you want liberty? How many of you want freedom? How many of you want to be set free from the things that are harassing you? Absolutely. God is a savior. He sent his son to save the world. And it brings liberty. It brings deliverance. It brings prosperity. It brings safety. It brings salvation. The third word used for uh, salvation is tesua, and it is used 17 times in the Old Testament. And it means to rescue literally or figuratively, personally, nationally, or spiritually. So the third most common word translated as salvation in the Old Testament embodies the concept that God will save you as an individual, but he will save you as a nation if as a nation you turn from your wicked ways and repent and honor him yet again. He will save you personally, he will save you nationally, and he will save you spiritually. You see, God doesn't just pick our spiritual well-being. 
Everything starts with your spiritual well-being, but God never put a period after the word salvation to mean only your spiritual well-being. It's not how he dealt with Israel. When he dealt with Israel, he brought them deliverance and salvation on many levels and in many varied ways. The last word for salvation is uh, reference number 4190, and it's only used once in the Old Testament, Mushawah, and it means deliverance. So here we are today in, in our Protestant roots. The church lost a lot of revelation once Rome accepted Christianity as the national religion after the first 300 years. Little by little, a lot of paganistic ideas and a lot of ungodly people started to get into the power of the church. And we have a reformation which took place hundreds of years later because the church was steeped in so much darkness. You see, truth can be lost. If you study the epistles of the New Testament, I just took the Bible college year three class through New Testament survey, and it's amazing as you go through the epistles, both of Peter and Paul and even James, they're constantly fighting against wrong teaching, trying to come into the church. And it was so prolific that Paul coined the phrase, never used anywhere else in Scripture, he says they are doctrines of demons. You see, the devil is a counterfeiter. And God's doctrines are principles of life. Principles are universally true. And when we understand the principles of how God operates and how God governs, we could step into the principles of God and be in the slipstream of his Holy Spirit. But demons understanding that conceive and connive and bring doctrines of demons into the church which are not principles of God and we end up believing religious garbage that isn't scriptural and it robs us, it steals from us and ultimately it has the ability to destroy us. And so Paul was very passionate about fighting against wrong teaching coming into the church. The church went into great darkness. And thank God for men like Wycliffe and John Huss and others who had little windows of revelation, not new thought, old thought rediscovered. We're not talking about new revelation. My goodness, there's enough in the Word of God. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around all of it. There is enough blessing inside of God's word. I don't need to make up a fairy tale. We're not looking for new revelation. We're looking for the revelation that is written in the word of God. Come on now, everybody agree with me. Absolutely. Because the concept of salvation is so diverse in the Hebrew language and in the Jewish culture... 
after several hundred years, 500 years of them not being their own nation and being subject to one heathen nation after another, they were looking for their salvation and they were looking for their Messiah, but they never thought that their Messiah would come and die for their sins. They had a sacrificial system. They thought that would suffice. But according to the word that they read, they understood that salvation spoke also about being delivered from your oppressors. Salvation spoke about being saved nationally. And so by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, these supposedly religious men had been tricked into just one concept of salvation and it was the concept that a Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman Empire and make Israel the greatest nation in the world and then all the world would be converted to God as they come to the faith of the Hebrew faith and start to worship Yahweh. Jesus spoke to his own disciples and said, I must go to the cross and die. They, they had trouble understanding it. If they had understood that they could never enter the kingdom of God unless he died, they would have been pushing him to the cross. But even the kingdom of darkness didn't understand this truth because Paul tells us in Corinthians that if the leaders of the spirit world had a known they never would have crucified Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If they could have conceived in their warped, twisted minds a love so grandiose that through the death of God's Son, we would be reborn, restored, restitution would be made, and we would be brought back into the image of the last Adam. The same way we bore the likeness of the first Adam, we would actually bear the likeness of the last Adam. And so Paul pans and says, if the demons of hell ever understood this revelation, they never would have crucified Jesus Christ. Wow. You see, it's easy to get locked into one perspective and miss the totality of what God's wanting to do. And so Israel missed the moment of their opportunity, the coming of their God. They missed it because they were looking for a political, spiritual leader who would ride them into battle and lead them into victory and make Israel a great nation again. You see, the concept of salvation includes that, but it also includes the spiritual, but it also includes the material. It also includes physical needs, as, as we have seen from these verses. And so sometimes people balk at the scripture in Peter that we just read, First Peter, by his stripes you were healed. And they want to take everything that Jesus died for and bring it down to one subject and one subject only and that is he died for your sins so that if you ask him into your heart he writes your name in the book of life and one day you get to go to heaven but right now you're going to keep walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I thank God the most important thing Jesus did was die for my sins. 
The most important thing that Jesus did was shed blood so that I could have relationship with God. He brought restoration and restitution to my relationship with my father and yours. Without a question, that is the most important thing. But just like man's basic problem is sin, that's the foundation. And as a result of sin, we have sickness, we have jealousy, we have envy, we have murder, we have strife, we have prejudice. All of those things come from one foundation. And in the same way, Jesus died for our spiritual well-being, but it's the foundation of life. It's the foundation of deliverance. It's the foundation of healing. It's the foundation of victory. Isaiah 53, thank you. But uh, it's going to get better. Turn to somebody and say, it's going to get better. He's about to turn it on. We're going to get even more specific. Isaiah 53 is known as the atonement passage. Isaiah 53. Would you throw it up on the screen real quick? The whole thing. Start with verse 1. I know I'm catching it by surprise now. This is the passage of Scripture where it talks about he was despised and rejected by all men. This is the passage where Isaiah prophesies and refers to the suffering servant. Did you know that in Israel, in the Jewish Hebrew culture, this is referred to as the forbidden chapter? Did you know that? That's a fact. It's, it's referred to as the forbidden chapter because they cannot reconcile who is this person who pays the price for our transgressions. You know, when I was, this is a true story, when I was in year 10 in high school, I went to Elmont Memorial High School in Long Island. I was fresh back with my parents from the mission field. We had been experiencing revival in Australia. So here I was, a 16, 17-year-old high schooler on fire for Jesus. In New York, I would wear my Jesus Loves You t-shirts from the 70s, one way on the back, And uh, I I took English Bible as literature. And that was one of my courses in English. I chose it. It was an elective. And we had to write a thesis. And so my thesis was that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies. And uh, (laughs) I... Across the street from our school, there was a synagogue. And I decided that I would go and interview one of the rabbis there and talk to him, how do you interpret this passage of Scripture? Now, what I'm about to tell you is not to put anyone in a negative light, but by the same token, it's a true story. So here I was, a 16, 17-year-old kid. I went to the synagogue and I... The rabbi met me and he, I told him what I was doing, that I was doing a thesis from school and I wanted to have a talk with him. And he showed me through his library. He says, I'll be with you in about 10 minutes. Have a look at anything. I was too afraid to touch anything, so I, I didn't. I waited for him. And uh, when he came, he brought me in his office and I said, sir, this is what I'm doing. I'm writing a paper and I want to get 
a Hebrew perspective on messianic prophecies and whether or not Jesus Christ could have been the fulfillment. And God is my witness. I, I said to him, how do you explain Isaiah 53? I didn't know it was the forbidden chapter. This very accommodating, kind, warm, welcoming gentleman must have had a bad day. <laughs> I'll put it down to that. He stood up and berated me and accused me of trying to trap him and he threw me out of the synagogue. Now, I had a chiropractic appointment. I used to see a chiropractor three times a week because I had such a bad back. God's healed me of that. I work like an ox now. I wept all the way. I mean, I was, I was just so devastated. I'm a kid, and this leader just totally ripped me to shreds. And uh, I just wept the whole way. I learned and realized years later it's not him, it's the spirit behind him. And I didn't realize that that was such a powerful passage that it's referred to as the forbidden passage. It's the passage referred to as the atonement prophecy or the atonement scriptures. And it talks about how the Messiah would come and he would pay the price for our sins. This is Old Testament stuff. And so in verse 1 it says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2. For he shall grow up before him, God, as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there's no beauty that we should desire him. Next verse. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now I'm going to start preaching to you off of verse 4. In verse 4, if you would turn to it for me, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Now, there are three words in this passage that I want to take you back to the original Hebrew and show you what it really says. Surely he has borne out, first word, born, griefs, and sorrows. And let's look at what this reads in the Hebrew. The word born, you can put it on the screen, and there's the reference number, 5375, Nasa. And it means to lift, to carry, to take. He bore, he took on himself. On the cross, Jesus lifted whatever he lifted. We're going to find out in a minute. But for now, we can agree he lifted whatever it was on you. And he put it on himself. And he was crucified. He was atoning. Paying the price for our salvation. Can you agree with me? All right. Nasa. To lift, to carry, to take. The second word is griefs. 
And in the English, we would tend to think, okay, grief, sorrow. The Hebrew word 2483 is kloli. And it literally means, this is straight from the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, sickness, disease, grief. It comes from the Hebrew root word kala, and that means malady, anxiety, calamity, disease, grief, and sickness. Wow. The third word from verse 4 is sorrows. And the Hebrew word is makob, makob. And it means pain, physical or mental. So the very first part of this prophetic spoken expression from God's heart refers to physical pain, mental pain, as the result of grief, which is sickness, disease, malady, anxiety, calamity, disease, grief, or sickness. Now, if this is potentially true, it marries up to the fact that the word salvation in the Old Testament covered a vast array. In fact, what I see if this Hebrew is correct, it lines up with God's concept of salvation. It may not line up with some denominational views of salvation. But like I said, my opinion, your opinion, our opinion doesn't matter. God's opinion is what matters. Can I get an agreement? You see, God's not the superhero who just wants to rescue little old ladies before they get mugged. God is the God of salvation who wants to bring transformation and deliverance to our lives. Amen. Yeah, if you believe that, would you just let him know and pay him the compliment? Amen. Amen. If we were to take those words, I don't know if you've ever read the Amplified Bible, but the Amplified Bible uh, just expounds on the definition of the words. We're going to take all of those definitions, and this is how that verse would read. Surely he has borne, you can put it on the screen, surely he has borne, lifted, carried, took our grief, sickness, disease, grief, malady, anxiety, calamity, and carried our sorrows, pain, physical and mental, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. So when Jesus was nailed on the cross, he literally carried every mental anguish and every physical anguish. He carried every calamity. He carried every malady. He carried every sickness. First Peter chapter 2, Paul, Peter says that he died for our sins. He paid for our iniquity. And made us righteous, but it also says by his stripes we were healed. And some people want to say, no, that's only spiritual healing. Well, let's go back to the prophecy and let's go back to the Hebrew. What does it say? In Isaiah, uh, 
I think it's pretty obvious that this scripture and the Hebrew language make it very clear that Jesus paid the price for our healings as well. But we're not going to stop there. I ask myself whenever I'm doing something like this, well, is there confirmation by other scriptures? Those students in Bible college hear me say all the time, you can't build a doctrine on one scripture. You cannot. So does the Bible agree with this? Are there other passages of scripture that show that this passage, Isaiah 53, the atonement prophetic word of God, doesn't just affect our spiritual sin, but it also affects all the consequences, the curses that came as a result of man's sin. And I found something really, really interesting. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, how many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? I am absolutely convinced it is inerrant. It wasn't written by man. Man was the vessel. He was the tool. But the Holy Spirit of God was the inspiration. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, Jesus had just prayed in verse 15 for Peter's mother-in-law. She had a high fever. She got healed. Verse 16 says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. Verse 17, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah he took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, sees Jesus healing everyone and immediately links it to chapter 53, the passage of atonement, and he says, this is that. Can you see it, church? Powerful thing. Very, very powerful thing. Let's look at Isaiah 53, verse 5. What does the next verse say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes he was healed. We're going to look at the word transgression. We're going to look at the word iniquity. We're going to look at chastisement. We're going to look at peace, stripes, and healed. The word transgression, uh, the reference number 6588, pesha, it literally means transgression, rebellion, sin, or trespass. Now I'm convinced that hasn't affected anybody in this room. He died for our sins. He died for my rebellion. He died for my boneheaded, stupid, hard-willed decisions to do the wrong thing. He died for the issue of sin and paid the price to cover sin so that we could have a relationship with God. Everybody say, thank you, Jesus. Without a question. He died because of sin. He died to restore relationship. So the word transgression means everything we, we know it to mean and would think it means. It says iniquity. 
It says uh, the word here is avon, iniquity, guilt, fault, mischief, sin. I am so glad when at times the devil tries to remind me of my past, which he does, and he brings particular situations before my memory. And just as my emotions start to cave under a sense of condemnation or guilt or shame, I quickly turn around and say, well, if we're going to play the memory game, let me remind you what Jesus did to you at the cross. Amen. Amen. Praise God. My iniquities, my, my guilt, my fault, my mischief, the things I've done that hurt me, that have hurt others, the things I've done wrong because I was once bound by the law of sin and death, is covered by the blood of Jesus. He made atonement. He paid the price for my mistakes, and he paid the price for your mistakes. In Monopoly, we get a get-out-of-jail-free Everybody wants to get a get out of jail free. You get into trouble, everybody wants to know a good lawyer. I want to tell you a good lawyer. He is my advocate. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Praise God. So iniquity, it talks about spiritual sin, our sins and the effect of our sins. The chastisement of our peace, the word chastisement, musha, the discipline, the chastening, the correction. I don't know if when you were a kid you ever got paddled on your backside. Uh, I grew up in a family where my parents believed in not sparing the rod. Now there is a difference between biblical correction or discipline and the kind of beatings and abuse that we see often in society. God is not a child beater. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. If your correction doesn't have self-control, if your, your correction is powered by anger and embarrassment, it's not biblical correction. Good preaching, Pastor Ron. Chastisement, Musa, the discipline, the chast chastening and the correction of our peace was on him. Now look at this peace. What does peace say? No, no, don't put it up on the wall. Don't take it down. They're trying to steal my thunder. What does peace mean? Shalom. What does it mean? Peace, right? Shalom. Shalom. We all know it. Shalom. Let's go back to the Hebrew dictionary. The chastisement for my peace, my shalom was on him. The word is shalom. Completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, welfare, health, prosperity, peace, good health. I know that you could be told by a doctor that you have cancer and it's in stage three. And you can have enough confidence of your eternal destiny that you can walk in peace. I know that. I know when I had Crohn's disease and my doctor told me and I was only in my 30s and had three little children, he said, this is going to kill you. You have very acute Crohn's disease. 
and it will take your life. I know that peace because I know where I would go. But peace is also knowing that God's got your health, he's got your well-being, he's got your prosperity. I can be honest with you that when I was living under the curse of Crohn's disease and the words that my doctor said, it will kill you, this is well over 30 years ago, okay? Yes, I'm over 60. Well over 30 years ago. And uh, it is a lot easier to be in peace when you're in health than when you have to bring your mind to a place of acceptance and keep reminding yourself you're going to heaven. You see, peace, we think of peace in a very shallow, narrow perspective. And yet, when God brings peace, it's like in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Why? Because in the presence of the Lord, there's deliverance, there's healing, there's salvation, there are miracles. Isn't it easier to be full of joy when you're being set free, delivered, healed, and you're getting one miracle after another? Can you have joy in the midst of conflict? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it doesn't change the fact that in his presence there is fullness of joy because in his presence there's the fullness of who he is. And he is Jehovah Rapha, a healer. He is Jehovah Jireh, a provider. He is Jehovah Tiskanu, my righteousness. Yeah, amen. So he took the, 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 he paid the price for my peace and that's completeness, soundness. How many of you want to have a sound mind? How many of you want to become complete? Peace, welfare. He takes care of my economy. He takes care of my health. He takes care of my prosperity. He takes care of everything. And, and then it, the word stripes, kabura, means a stripe, a blow, a wound, a welt, healed. Rafa. Do you know God introduced himself in the Old Testament as Jehovah Rapha? I am Jehovah, I am Yahweh who heals. And it means to heal, to cure, to cause to heal, to be repaired, to thoroughly make hold, to mend by stitching. If we put all this back into that verse, it reads like this. But he was wounded for our transgressions, our rebellion, our sin, our trespass. And everyone said, amen. We can agree. He was bruised for our iniquities, our guilt, our fault, our mischief, our sin. And everyone said, we can agree. The chastisement for our peace, completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, health, prosperity was upon him. And everyone said, Amen. And by his stripes, his blows, his wounds, we are healed, cured, repaired, thoroughly made whole, mended by stitching together. And everyone said, Amen. Look, you, you can take the healing part and throw it away. The most important thing is that you're going to go to heaven and that you get born again and ask Jesus in your heart. 
But how many of you would buy a brand new Hyundai Palisade and pay $53,000 and it's got all the options you want and the, the, the dealer delivers it to you and says, well, you paid it in full. It's yours. And you go to press the button so that you could drive away and there's no noise. And you ask them, is this an electric model? I don't hear anything. He says, no. He says, you paid for the whole thing, but we decided to just give you part of the car. There's no engine. How many of you would be satisfied with that? How many of you would go home and say, man, I got a good deal? Hey? You see, Jesus paid a price, and he paid a price because when Adam sinned, a world of curses came to the earth. Jesus, everyone who's born into the last Adam, comes out of the kingdom of darkness, the realm, the sphere of influence, the governance of demons, and comes into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are experiencing what he died for, the rights of a citizen of heaven include everything that is in salvation. It never ceases to amaze me. Americans know their rights. And Christians often don't. Everything he died for is my right. When I pay $53,000 for a palisade, I don't know what they cost. I don't have one. I want the motor too. I want the spare tire Two, if it's meant to come with air conditioning, I want air conditioning. Hello? If it's supposed to have cruise control, I want cruise control. I want everything Jesus paid for. It's my right. It's your right. Can I get an agreement? Turn to somebody and say, this is good preaching. It's not just preaching, it's teaching. You see, when Jesus said it's finished, this is what he was saying, it's finished too. The curse, the result, the downfall, the calamity, the, the caving in of the world that God had created came to an end at the cross. I'm not in this world. While I live in this world, I live under the governance of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to believe in healing. And you're not less of a Christian if you don't believe in healing. But I'm always going to preach the truth and not a half gospel or a quarter gospel, the whole gospel. The good news, you see, we preach the gospel of salvation. That's what the church preaches today. The gospel of salvation and it means repent from your sins and you'll have eternal life. But Jesus sent his disciples out preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And the good news of the kingdom of heaven means you don't no longer have to live in hell on earth. You are living under the auspices of Jesus Christ and everything that his kingdom looks like. Yeah, give the Lord a clap. One Peter two twenty four, who himself bore our sins. Yes, he died for our sins on his body on the tree. That we, having died to sin, yes, 
we were crucified with him, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. It is finished. At the cross, I got healed. At the cross, my sinful nature was dealt with. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you every curse that was pro broken at every spot that Jesus shed blood from his body. Peter makes it clear by the whippings on his back. Isaiah said it. That's why Peter said it. Peter understood Hebrew. And when he read it, he knew what it meant. By his stripes, we were healed. And every time I need a healing of my body, I don't say, God, please heal me. I say, thank you, God. You already healed me in Jesus' name. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Sometimes we approach the subject of healing like something we still have to get. No, I already got it. You say, well, it's not manifesting in your body. doesn't change the fact. Theologically, it's finished. I already got it. Jesus said, if you believe in your heart and speak with your mouth and speak to this mountain and don't doubt what you say, it shall be. If you believe you have received it, you will receive it. It's finished. I've already received it. I've already received it. Healing is my right. You can forego your rights in the United States of America. The people who stand up and make noise about their rights, they get heard. And the people who say, ah, it doesn't matter. Can't be bothered. They're the people that get trodden underfoot. In the kingdom of darkness, if you're not willing to stand on the fact that it is finished, the enemy won't mind because he's happy to stand on you. That's not divine order. The divine order is I am seated in heavenly places with Jesus and principalities and powers are under my feet. I'm not going to settle for less than what Jesus died for. Can I get an agreement? I'm going to close with an illustration. I am about, heads up, I'm about to pull out a starter pistol. I showed Pastor Carlos, if there's anyone who's packing, I'm not pulling out an armed gun. All right? I don't want to be the guy who goes down. <laughs> We're going to have two runners come to the front. If my runners would come to the front. I want to give you an illustration. This is, only has like caps in it. There is no projectile whatsoever. And I'm going to tell these two runners to start here. And uh, Alessandro, I want you to run up this side. Go to the left. And come all the way back. I want you to run up this side, go to the right, come back. The first one who touches the cross wins. All right? You, all, you ever watch the Olympics? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and just be careful of the lady in the wheelchair. <laughs> all right? You've watched the Olympics. You know how this works. You ready? On your mark. On your mark. Get set. Go.
You see, this runner understands he starts at the finish line. We have to keep refocusing. It's finished. I already proved to you, Jesus, that wasn't his, you know, his code for, I'm about to expire. No. What the Father started in the Garden of Eden, the Son finished on the cross. The plan of salvation, it's been paid for. And so in your walk, in your Christianity, I have to do this. I got to keep reminding myself. Sometimes I start fighting for something. I'm going to get healed. Oh, I'm, I'm getting that healing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's start from the fact it is finished. Amen. It's finished. Praise God. Would you stand with me? You know, guys, in this church, we believe in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. We pray here every day of the week, except for Monday, we take a break. Pastor Tom was here in the prayer meeting the other day, and while the team was praying, I was out at one of the high schools for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and while they were praying, a scripture kept coming to Pastor Tom. Psalm 22, I think it was verse 35 to 36, if you'd put it on the screen. He didn't know what it was. He said, I, I got to say it. The scripture keeps coming to me. I don't know what it is. And Pastor Jan pulled out the Passion Translation, verse 30 to 31, his spiritual seed. By the way, Psalm 22 is where David writes and he says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They cast lots for my garments, Right? None of my bones are broken. It's a prophetic scripture about Jesus being on the cross. And this passage of scripture ends with these verses. It's talking about Yeshua, the one who comes to save. It says his spiritual seed. Are you his spiritual seed? His spiritual seed shall serve him. Future generations will hear from us about the wonders of the victorious Lord. His generation yet to be born will glorify him and they will all declare it is finished. That's where we start. No striving. I'm not trying to earn his love. He loves me. I think he got the short end of the stick, but he loves me. I'm already accepted. I'm already righteous in his eyes. I don't do this because I'm trying to be good enough so that I'll, I'll make it. No. In the midst of everything good I do, I sin and I make stupid mistakes and I sometimes wound people. No. I start from the fact I'm already the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And when I need a healing in my body, I start from the fact it's finished. He already paid the price for it. It's my right. I'm not getting a palisade without the motor. And I'm not getting a palisade without the four wheels. I even want the spare tire. Make sure the spare tire's in there. Because that's what was paid for.
Are you with me? <sighs> Praise God. If you have never asked Jesus Christ into your life, the fact that he died to give you relationship with God, that he died to pay a price for all your sin, that is the most important thing. When I buy a car, I could choose the options. You don't want the option? Don't pay for it. Jesus paid for it. But salvation is the most important thing. You will never be good enough, but he's good enough to save you. And if you've never asked Jesus in your heart, come on, right now. Hundreds of people do this all the time. Put your hand up and say, I want to ask Jesus Christ into my heart. Right across this auditorium. Come on, if that's you. Come on, you know your heart's not right with God. You need to... Get right with God. You need Jesus. Something's pulling on you, and you just feel that tug. Put your hand up and say, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. While you're watching online right now, if you haven't asked Christ in your heart, say yes to Jesus. I'm going to ask you all to do something. I'm going to ask you to be very respectful, very polite, very gentle. This is so important. I want you to turn to someone next to you, even if you know them, even if you came to church with them, even if it's your wife or your husband. And I want you to say, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Go on, turn to someone. Be gentle, be polite. Don't be rude. You can't get to heaven because your wife's going. You can't get to heaven because your mom's there. You can't get to heaven because you came to grace and faith. Being part of this church doesn't save you. Being part of Jesus saves you. So one last time. Did anyone say yes to someone? If you said yes to someone, you want to ask Jesus in your heart? Okay. Well, if you're watching online, then I want you to contact us. We want to send you some information. Everyone, if you've been saved in the last 12 months and you haven't done a new Christian course, you saw the ads. We're starting this class first Sunday in June. I'm excited about us. Straight after church, we will feed you. You get a Bible. You get a leather Bible cover, a faux leather, and uh, you get the study book. You get all the pamphlets and flyers. We want to invest in you. Jesus invested in us. I want to imitate him. How many of you know God will keep supplying resources to us when we imitate him? Amen. Amen. Healing's your right. And when the devil comes and says, you're not healed, look at your symptoms, you say, devil, Look at the bottom of my feet because that's where you belong. I have the victory in Jesus' name. Amen. Give someone a high.